Well, last week we started in on chapters 29 and 30 of 1 Samuel. Uh, we're moving into the final section of this book now. We've been in, in 1 Samuel for, for quite a while. I don't remember how long, but it's, it's been a while. Um, in terms of our schedule going forward, you know, next week is obviously Easter Sunday. So we're going to step out of 1 Samuel and we'll focus on a passage particular to the resurrection of Christ. And then we'll come back the following week and, uh, and finish up 1 Samuel with chapter 31. I thought I might time it right to finish this just before Easter, but of course that, that never works out for me like I think it will. Uh, so we'll come back for one more week in 1 Samuel. Then, then going forward, we're going to begin, in, begin the Gospel of John, if you remember. So that'll be something we can look forward to. You can even start reading the Gospel of John now and, and refamiliarizing yourself with it. Uh, but that's, that's the plan as we look ahead. Uh, but as for today, we finish up chapter 30. That's the plan. Uh, and we'll set our, our context uh, in the following way. Uh, in the regular course of our life experience, we become very well aware that things are lacking. A sense of lacking and awareness of incompleteness can be present in any number of areas. Uh, for example, on a personal level, we can feel that we lack clarity in terms of direction uh, to take at different times in our life. Our understanding of what the next best step is can be lacking. We know that experience. Uh, we can feel the sense of lacking at a professional level too, whether it be in relationship to our capacities to do the work or whether it uh, relates to our actual working environment itself. Professionally, we can experience deficits. Uh, no doubt in the sphere of relationships, this sense of incompleteness can be present as well. Uh, certain relationships that maybe we hoped would bring a level of fullness uh, prove to not bring that, uh, that, that completeness that we were hoping for. Those relationships can be lacking. Uh, and the list can go on and on, whether it's political leaders around us, whether it's personal ambitions, whether it's uh, challenges we face in our physical bodies. Uh, things are not always whole and we know that, and we live with that. It's part of our daily lives. And as we come to our study of the Bible, one of the realities that's meant to become very clear as we study God's revelation is that while we as humanity are lacking, uh, while we're very aware of inadequacies and impairments and flaws, and, and even more than that, while we're aware that, that things go even deeper as we feel a real sense of sin, our rebellion against God Himself as our Maker, while we're aware of our insufficiencies, what is central to scriptural revelation is that while we are lacking, there is one who is entirely complete. There is one who isn't lacking. There is one who is absolute, one who is unconditionally whole. And, and His name is Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one from God. He's the Christ. He's God's ultimate anointed King over all the cosmos. He's the Savior of all who come to Him in faith. And in a world and in life that's so affected by a sense of not wholeness, in a world and in life that's so often marked by very tangible expressions of incompleteness, uh, not to mention the, the deep corrupting and disintegrating effects of sin itself, what we need more than anything else is to know this King. What we need more than anything else is to know Jesus, to know the one uh, who comes and who is entirely sufficient and who is entirely complete. Who is this complete King? What is Jesus really like? This is what we need to know most of all. And so for the purposes of knowing Jesus, we know that, uh, that we have been given God the Holy Spirit to grant life to our dead hearts so that we can see Him as our Savior and our King. The ministry of the Holy Spirit of God is to come and direct our attention to the glories of Christ, to the sufficiencies of Christ. And for the purposes of knowing Jesus, we also know that we've been given the Scriptures, which in all places direct our attention to Him. And we can't remind ourselves of this often enough. The Bible is a book about Jesus. 
to help with that reminder, uh, for homework this afternoon, you could read Luke chapter 24, for example, where the resurrected Christ on the Emmaus Road uh, is walking and he is explaining uh, from all the different parts of Scripture how, how the Bible testifies to him. The Scriptures reveal uh, this complete king that we need. And the Bible does that in different ways. Uh, for example, in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus is biographically revealed to us quite directly. We have the accounts of His earthly ministry, the healings that proved His restorative power, the deliverances that proved His rescuing power, the teaching that points to life found only in Him. In the Gospels, Jesus is revealed directly. And then in the book of Acts in the New Testament, Jesus, Jesus is proclaimed. So the message about Jesus goes out to the world, calling all kinds of different people to turn to God's King and find life. And then in the New Testament letters, in the epistles, like, like Romans or like 1 Peter, there Jesus is explained. Uh, the biblical authors work out what it means to know the depths of Christ's work, what He's done for us, and, and then what it means to live a life of trust and obedience in response to the work that Christ has done. And then in the Revelation, Jesus is expected. As, as the world goes on, some, some things are encouraging, some things are wretchedly evil, but Jesus is the one who ultimately will bring God's final and saving and just purposes to a glorious climax. So all that to say, we read our New Testament and Jesus is revealed, Jesus is proclaimed, Jesus is explained, Jesus is expected. And all that is critical if we're going to get to know our complete King, which is why we're going to go and spend time in the Gospel of John here in just a few weeks. We need these things to fill out our understanding of who Jesus really is. But in saying that, we also remind ourselves that it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. There's a reason none of us have come to church this morning, I don't think, at least just with carrying a New Testament. At least if you did, it'll be hard to follow along today, right? Because while Jesus is revealed, proclaimed, explained, and expected in the New Testament, all of that is grounded in the truth of Old Testament revelation from which Jesus is anticipated. All through the Old Testament, from Genesis 1 and the light that shone in the darkness when God created the heavens and the earth, all, all from the beginning of the Bible all the way through in the Old Testament, Jesus is foreshadowed, He's prefigured, He's foretold, He's symbolized, He's predicted, He's prophesied. All through the Old Testament, we're reading truth that says, be watching, be ready, be waiting, be anticipating, because this promised one is coming. And so we read our Old Testament in that way. We, we ask the question of, of the Old Testament, questions like, how does this passage direct my attention to the Lord Jesus? How does this passage help properly fill out my understanding of who Christ really is? And in chapters 29 and 30 of 1 Samuel, we see that we're directed toward Jesus as we would expect in this kind of way. Um, and, and we're directed there through this foreshadowing that comes for us from King David's own life. So in King David, we have God's chosen king. We remember that. Saul is the king of the people's asking. You remember, David is the king of God's choosing. In King David, we have God's chosen king. Uh, were we to study on into 2 Samuel, which Lord willing we will someday, uh, we would get to chapter 7 where the Lord makes a covenant with David promising that the eternal king of his people, King Jesus, would come from David's family line. God makes that promise to David. And, and so in David we have an anticipatory picture, if you like, pointing forward to God's ultimate choice king. And so as we understand David's life to at least in part function this way, it helps us make sense of pa passages like we're studying this morning because in this passage, we have a particular focus on giving us a more complete view of God's King. 
Here, here we have truth that helps set the compass of our expectations properly as we seek to know more and more about what's true with regard to Christ. And last week we spent time working out how this completion theme is represented in chapters 29 and 30. And I won't go through it all again this morning except to say that, that as strange as it sounds, this, this completion theme surfaces as we, as we recognize many, many references to the number three in these two chapters. And all that, of course, is in relationship to God's king. If you remember that from last week, we saw things, first of all, like David's name is repeated 33 times when we put these two chapters together. Right? David's affirmed by the Philistine king Achish of all people. Can you imagine that? Goli the king of Goliath's hometown affirms David three times. Right? David and his men return to Ziklag on the third day. They meet the Egyptian slave who's been three days, three nights without food or water. And the list just goes on and on. Three is repeated throughout this whole narrative. And we talked about this last week, how a focus on a particular number is, is one of the ways in Hebrew narrative for the author to make specific emphasis. And the number three emphasizes this idea of completeness. All, all through the Bible, threes appear in this way. It's on the third day of creation that, that dry land appears, the waters are separated, and vegetation springs forth. There's a sense of completion in that. Life comes into creation on the third day in that way. And as we go through the Bible, of course, it's the third day that Jesus rises from the dead. So it's not just life, but it's actually eternal life that, that comes to us on the third day. And we could go on and on with all kinds of different examples. I gave you a whole bunch last week, but three reflects completion. And so in putting all this together, we come to our chapters, understanding that the narrator, through the repetition of this, of this number, is drawing our attention to the fact that we are getting a more complete view of God's choice king as we study the truth that's here. And we also know that this narrative is ultimately moving us from King David to considering the fullness of kingship that's, that's there for us in the Lord Jesus. So we have these two things coming together. Look at God's king, look at God's king, look at God's king, how complete he is. And what do we know from that? Well, we know we're given this indicator that there's completion in Christ that we are, if we were living in David's time, to be longing for. Now there's a completion in Christ as we live during our time of God's redemptive in God's redemptive history. Now we're given this complete picture of Christ that we can rest in, that we can, that we can find restorative truth uh, to bring to our hearts as, as we consider these things. So we're being directed in an ultimate sense to consider the completeness of Christ, which is really what we need so badly. Because as we said from the beginning, we feel our inadequacy. We feel our incompleteness. We know, those, we know those things to be true. We're aware of our folly. We're aware of our frailty. Uh, we're, we're needy people. Uh, we're incomplete if left to ourselves. But in knowing Christ more fully, in knowing Christ more completely, we're moved from what would otherwise be a posture of hopelessness. We're actually moved to a place of extraordinary rest because of the fullness that's found in Christ. And so this passage helps us with that. Uh, it, it helps us see that in Christ we find one who is complete and this rounds out our picture of expectation in terms of what's really true about, about Jesus in this way. So all that to say, we're going to jump back into these, these uh, verses today. Last week we got through all of chapter 29 and through the first six verses of chapter 30. That was last week. Uh, maybe you remember we, we noted there how God's uh, complete king in, involves an understanding that people will respond to him differently. We spent some time on that last week. And then we also spent some time uh, noting that God's king is also one who endures the darkness faithfully. If we're going to have a, a complete view of Christ, we need to know that's what he's like. He endures darkness faithfully as well. And so that brought us all the way up through verse 6. And now we're going to keep going. So, if you have an eye on the passage, 
Uh, we're going to go next into verses 7 to 12. And the next thing we'll see is, is that a complete understanding of God's king also includes the truth that he's gentle with the weary. He's gentle with the weary. This is verses 7 to 12. Um, so, so last we left things, David and his men were in a sorrowful position. You remember that? Uh, their town had been burned to the ground by the marauding Amalekites. Uh, their families had been taken captive, driven off life, like livestock. That's actually the, the, the Hebrew terminology that's used there earlier in the passage. They were driven off like cattle. Uh, David and his men have just wept until they have no more strength to weep in verse 4. And David's men are also almost ready to turn on David. Uh, they seem to blame him at some level for, for what's happened. And while David is trusting in the Lord, renewing his strength and what he knows is true about God and God's provision for him, still the town is burned, the families are gone, and the men are angry. So what is the next step? What's, what's going to happen next? And what we see is that unlike Saul back in chapter 28, who had no word of guidance from the Lord, David calls for the priest Abiathar and then, and then asks the Lord if he should pursue the raiders. David is looking for guidance. And the Lord responds with a threefold answer in verse 8. There's another one of the threes in this passage. The Lord says, pursue them, for you will surely overtake them and rescue the people. That's God's answer. The Lord directs David to go with the promise of success. And so we're told in verse 9 that David and his 600 military men, they go in pursuit. And in verse 9, we read that they come to the Wadi Besor. A Wadi is a term for a ravine that, that water flows through during the rainy seasons. Though this is a well-known ravine, it's, it's more like a river. Uh, some point out that it seems to be more like a year-round stream that, that, that they come to here. Uh, so they came to this place which would have had water flowing. It would have been a refreshing place which is actually reflected in the name Besor. Uh, that, that name is the same as the Hebrew word for good news. Um, so, so they come to this good news stream, if you like, uh, which, by the, by the way, that name Besor also repeats three times in here. There are just threes everywhere you look in this passage. So, so the good news name repeats uh, three times here. Uh, but at the good news stream, we're told that 200 men, so one-third of David's men, are too exhausted to go on. They can't cross it. They're wiped out. Actually, the word translated exhausted in the CSB in verse 10 is the same word for corpse in Hebrew, just to emphasize their weariness. Okay. So a third of David's men, we'd say they're dead tired, maybe. They're dead tired. They can't go on, which is not really a big surprise because these, these men have been going really hard if we think back to what's been happening so far in the, in the narrative. At, at this point, Remember how they were with the Philistines, but they were told to leave the Philistines. So they actually just covered about 50, uh, 55 miles getting back to Ziklag from where they were with the Philistines. And we're told they covered that in three days. So walking 55 miles in three days. And then the geography here indicates that going from Ziklag to this stream, they've covered another 20 miles or so uh, as they begin their pursuit of the Amalekites. And on top of all that, we've also been told they were weeping until they had no strength left to weep. Back in, back in verse 4. So, so it's no wonder 200 men can't keep going. They're totally wiped out. They're corpse-like in their tiredness. And what's really noteworthy here is that they get to this place that, that's indicated by name to be refreshing. It's the good news stream. And David leaves them. And, and we'll see later on, he doesn't, he doesn't leave them with a, with a threat or promised punishment for ditching the military campaign. David leaves them in an understanding way, in a compassionate way. By verse 24, David is happy to provide an equal share of the spoil with these 200 men who stay behind. 
So here David is again pictured as so opposite of Saul. Saul, you remember, the king of the people's choosing. Back in chapter 14, he wouldn't let his men eat when they were in battle. And the men were worn out. They were exhausted. Saul actually threatened them with death if they would have eaten. Saul Saul was, was horrible to his men. No refreshment whatsoever. Here, though, everything is different with God's choice king. David has weary troops, and he leaves them to rest at the good news stream. David, David's gentle. He, he's not indignant. He's not pressing the men beyond what they can do. And this gentle side, this compassionate side of David is reflected again as the text goes on. Because as David and the remaining 400 men keep up the pursuit, in the next verse, in verse 11, they come upon this starving Egyptian slave of the Amalekite. He's sick. He's been left behind, we're told. And David is eventually going to want information from this Egyptian. He's going to want to know where the Amalekites are. David and his men need to find their families. But before any of those kind of questions take place, even before they sort out who this man is exactly, if you look at the text, uh, we see that this man has brought extraordinary refreshment uh, because of David and his men. So if you look at the text, particularly verses 11 and 12, this Egyptian, he's not just provided with a little food and water and then immediately pressed for information. Uh, but, the, but there's actually a strange emphasis here, and the commentators take note of how strange this is. In verse 11 and 12, we have a description of some pretty luxurious food. First of all, to be carrying on a battle march to begin with, so there's that. But secondly, how strange to share this luxury with a starving Egyptian. So, so in verse 11, this Egyptian is given bread and water. That's, that's good, we'd expect that. But then verse 12, he's also given pressed figs and two clusters of grains. This is like a party platter the men are putting out for this guy as they meet him, right? And that's before ever asking him for any information. The text just tells us that this man hadn't eaten food or drunk water for three days and three nights, so he's in bad shape. And before prioritizing, figuring out anything that's going on with this man, what he might know about the Amalekites and the raid, David prioritizes this man's physical needs given his, given his weak condition. David exercises this gentle kind of care. And so put all this together and what's being revealed to us to help complete our view of God's king is very critical. We, we, we know on the one hand, we know God's king is extraordinarily strong. Right? We'll see this next, in fact. God's king is strong and he does not lose battles. He's the victor. He's powerful. When he executes justice and warfare, he does so in a way that is totally triumphant. But while possessing such great strength, God's king is also gentle. The men who were dead tired are left to rest at the stream of good news. And the Egyptian is refreshed by a battlefield feast. The powerful king who will not be defeated is also the gentle king who shows compassion to the weak. And we need to know this. this This is what God's king is like in the most climactic way. This is what Jesus is like. Remember that passage Uh, From Isaiah chapter 42, Jesus actually quotes it in relationship to himself in Matthew chapter 12. But but through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 42, the Lord speaks and he says this about Christ. He says, a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. That's what God's king is like. Jesus, the just and powerful almighty king who will one day vanquish all evil and wrong and his enemies will be nothing but a footstool to him. Even here, in this next section, God's king soundly uh, completes victory. He is very victorious, but God's king is also gentle with the weary. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. Some men need rest, the king gives his men rest. 
an Egyptian who's, who's, let's just remember, not only a historic enemy of Israel, the Egyptians, they held them in bondage and slavery. So you have not only a historic enemy of Israel, but you also have one who was helping with this marauding party, party of Amalekites. This Egyptian, he needs nourishment, and David is gentle and cares for them. So we just reflect on this. I, w I wonder if, as of late, you felt yourself to be a faintly burning wick. It's quite the imagery there in Isaiah. It's useful imagery there in Isaiah. A flame that's almost out. We can identify with a sense of that in our lives. We're not strong, not vigorous. Instead, we're weak, we're tired, we're barely flickering, almost gone. I wonder if that's been part of your experience lately. And along with that, I wonder if, you, if you've thought something like, well, you know, what, what good is my gospel life now? You know, Jesus calls me to a steady perseverance. He calls me to faithful obedience. But here I am just barely burning, just a flicker. Jesus must be looking upon me with a stern and disapproving gaze these days. Have you ever had that, that notion come to your mind in the midst of weakness? Oh, Jesus must be so unhappy. Maybe he's even kind of disgusted with me and my frailty. Those things can creep in. But a passage like this comes and reminds us that thinking this way does not reflect a complete view of Christ. He brings his weary troops to good news streams. He nourishes parched souls who are by nature even his enemy as we are here, as we see here. He, nur he nourishes them with his own abundant provision. Jesus is gentle with the weary. And for all the ways we could make application of this, one very practical element that this affects is, is how we think about cultivating a prayer life as people who know this about Jesus? How do we speak to the Lord Jesus? How do we respond to the Lord Jesus' truth as we have communion with Him in our felt weakness? We can say things like, Lord Jesus, I am, I am very tired. I, I'm not marked by strength, but stumbling. I am, I am not so sure that the perseverance in, 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 in what it means to follow you, this perseverance that you call me to, is something that I can do. I'm just barely flickering here. We need to be able to speak honestly like that with Christ in prayer. And then along with that, we need to strengthen ourselves in what's true. We need to hear his response as he reveals himself to us from his word. We need to be prepared for the gentle king's answer. And, and, and it's a response that promises renewal as we trust in him. It's a response that says he won't drive us beyond what we can bear, but he will bring you through no matter how dark the valley may be. He will bring you through to a place of sustained refreshment. So we need to remember that our king is gentle with the weak. He's gentle with us. He's not looking upon us with, with a disapproving gaze. He knows we're needy. That's why he came to die in our place at the cross. He doesn't look upon us with a disapproving gaze, but instead he looks upon us with grace for our times of weakness, with understanding, with compassion. And a complete view of God's king recognizes that God's king is gentle with the weary in this way. So that's verses 7 to 12. And then as we go on in verses 13 to 20, we'll take that next. We move from seeing that the king is, is gentle with the weary to the truth that he's also restorative in victory. He's restorative in victory. Um, so just, just keep an eye on verses 13 to 20 here. I won't take the time to read all these again, but, but be watching it. In verse 13, you see David is beginning to question the Egyptian now. And in the course of their interaction, the Egyptian agrees to lead David to the Amalekite raiders. So in verse 16, David and his men, they get to the location, and we see the Amalekites are there in the throes of celebrating, having taken all this plunder. And it does help us to remember from the surrounding chapters that, that Israel and the Philistines 
are uh, set up for battle against each other during this time. So the Amalekites probably felt no, no threat. They, they, know, they know these two larger powers that would otherwise be a threat to them, these powers who they've just gone into their towns and raided, that they're occupied with each other. The Amalekites probably totally had their guard down, except that David finds them. And we're told there that with the exception of, a, of some young men who escape on camels, we're told David slaughtered them, verse 17. David recovered everything, verse 18, including his own family. David brought everything back, verse 19. Nothing was missing, the text says. And in verse 20, David's men declared, this is David's plunder. So, so, so we read this, and, and we just it stands out to us. We have to see, it wasn't just that David and his men were victorious over their enemies. We could just make that basic point from this. David goes into battle against the ones who came to destroy what was his, and he won. We could just make that, that, that mere point from this passage. But we have to see there's, there's so much more here in terms of what's being emphasized. It's not just victory that's pictured. It's bigger than that here. What we're showing is that David is the king who doesn't just win, but his victory is restorative. His win is restorative. He didn't just defeat the Amalekites full stop. He defeated them and retrieved every single bit of every single thing that had been taken. Do you hear that emphasis in the text? Look at the verses again. Verse 18, David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken. Verse 19, nothing of theirs was missing from the youngest to the oldest. Verse 19 again, David got everything back. Verse 20, all the people shouted, this is David's plunder. David got it all back, livestock and everything. God's king is restorative in victory. All that was taken was entirely returned, even with more. It's a total restoration. And we need, to know, we need to know this truth about God's king. He's the one whose victory doesn't just bring winning. His victory brings total restoration. And this should guide us in our thinking about what's true for us in Christ. Total restoration. For the one who's trusting in Jesus, one day all the mess will be mended. And we need to meditate on this more. For the one who's trusting in Jesus, one day all the sadness will be exchanged for joy. That's Psalm 30. You'll turn my mourning into dancing. So I wonder just, when, when the last time was you sat in five minutes of solitude and silence and considered that every bit of hurt you've ever known will be replaced by an everlasting wholeness and happiness because of Jesus? One day the life that's been taken from us due to the actions of others, one day the lives we've harmed through our own actions, one day all that's heartbreaking, one day all that's law-breaking, one day all that destroys will be gone forever and total life will be restored to us in Christ. One day there will never be another school shooting. Can you imagine that? And the sorrow that's been reflected in Nashville this week will be restored for those who are in Christ to a place of joy. In Christ. So one day through Christ, for those who trust in Him, death will be restored to life in, in its totality. We wait for that day. We wait for it to come. But a total renewal of all creation to a condition of unceasing peace and wholeness will be there when Jesus returns and affects the finality of God the Father's plan. And why is that? Well, it's because the victory of God's king isn't just a crush all the enemies victory. The victory of God's king is a totally restorative victory. 
The Lord Jesus, He came, He took the curse of death for our sins upon Himself, and in so doing, He conquered sin, He removed the curse, He conquered the devil, but it wasn't just victory over those things. In, in Jesus' victory, He purchased for us this promise of restored life. And while we wait for the fullness of that day, and we do wait, we wait, we wait patiently, but sometimes we even wait impatiently. When will this day come? While we wait for that day, we wait from a place of guaranteed assurance based on Christ's own resurrection vindication, which is a topic for next week. But to have a complete view of Jesus means we must spend genuine time meditating on His restorative victory. However it may look, the, the, the raids of the Amalekites in your life. We've all had the Amalekites in our life in some form or another. They come, right? Those darknesses you've experienced will one day be totally and completely replaced by wholeness because of Jesus. So what a, what a big truth that is. A complete view of God's King doesn't only include the fact that he's gentle with the weary, which is glorious in and of itself, but he's also restorative in his victory. And then, we'll just notice one last thing quickly here. In verses 21 to 31, the last section, we also see that, uh, that uh, God's choice king gives generously. He gives generously. And we have this in the rest of the passage. You see it as you look at the verses 21 to 31. Um, David and his men, they return from battle in, that, in those verses. Uh, they're victorious, obviously. We're, we're told that the worthless men in David's army, so he's got some, uh, some folks who are not, uh, not, not so wonderful. It's actually the same word they're used to describe Eli's sons earlier in the chapter. Uh, but I'm trying to do all this in one sermon, so I've got to keep going. Um, David's got these guys in his group. They don't want to share any of the plunder with those who were too tired and had to stay behind, so no sharing with those who were, who were waiting at the good news stream. But David opposes that idea completely, so much so that he makes a royal edict in verse 25 to establish this as policy, that the one who stays with the supply gets the same share as the one who goes out into battle, right? that the share of plunder will be equal. After all, David says in verse 23, we have to have a proper perspective on this man, he says. We have to have a proper perspective on this. What, what we have, we don't have by our own power, but it's because the Lord has given us victory. We have to have a proper perspective on these things. This is really all the Lord's anyway, isn't it, David says to them? And so, he, and so he's going to share equally. It's actually a bit like the parable of the workers in the vineyard in Matthew chapter 20. Um, that could be another homework assignment. Read Matthew 20 later when you, when you get home. Um, but the king gives generously to the men who both fought with him and the men who stayed behind, those who worked all day and those who did not, uh, thinking about that parable. Uh, and, there, and there's a point of application here in and, and, and that the men who went to battle uh, did seem to be doing more valiant work, no doubt. Right? We can see how they would have thought that they would be a privilege to more plunder. Uh, they, were, they were probably tired too, and they despised those who stayed behind. It would be really nice to sit down by a stream for a while, but instead we're going to go fight a bunch of Amalekites all night long. Right? So, so it, it, it would have been something that was bothering them, and we can understand why, but it's worth noting that the king gives generously to all who are with him. What, what qualifies you to receive is not the totality of your deeds, but the fact that you're part of the king's company. That's what qualifies you to receive. You're the king's people. It's possible to have a uniquely weary season of life as we think about applying this. It's possible to have a uniquely weary season, and in that season, you look around and you say to yourself, you know, I haven't been doing what others have been doing for the kingdom of God. I've not served as maybe I ought to serve. Probably that means my share in grace is less. After all, I've just, I've just not done what others have done. But we have to check that thought 
because King Jesus isn't stingy. Christ is not a gift giver based on the fact you've fought the hardest or the longest. His grace is for all who are part of his troop, if you like. And, and, and we see that displayed here as he shares the spoil with the men who stayed behind. And then, and in the last section, we see this giving on the part of David again, uh, this time to the various groups in the tribe of Judah. So we're told that David sends plunder to his friends, the elders of Judah. And then gifts to different cities are, are sent out. Uh, verse 31 tells us that these were all the places David and his men roamed while he ran from Saul. So just a little Saul reminder there. These are actually all the towns that Achish would have thought David was raiding when David was lying to him about what he was really doing. All these towns in the area there. But David gives gifts, give, gives gifts to them. Which is just something to notice because David, even out of his own hardship and the experience of suffering, is the opposite of the king of the people's choosing. God's king is so different. You remember back when, when the prophet Samuel told the people who were asking for a king, he told the people what a king like the nations would be like. Back in chapter 8, when they wanted a king of their own choosing, what marked out a king like the nations? Well, it was taking. Remember that from chapter 8? Right? He'll take your sons, Samuel says. He'll take your daughters. He's going to take your fields, vineyards, olive orchards. He's going to take your grain. He's going to take your male servants, female servants, your best cattle. He's going to take from your flocks. That was Samuel's warning. This is what you get with a king of your own choosing. Take, 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 take. And we know that. You know, those things that promise us fulfillment outside of God's purpose, they don't give us life, they take life. That's what Saul was like, and that's what, what those enticements to fulfillment contrary to God's revealed will continue to be like today. Taking life, not giving life. But that's not what God's king is like. In verse 26, actually the Hebrew literally reads that David, David said, here is a blessing. For you from the plunder. God's king blesses. He gives. He doesn't take. And, and we know this. The, the ultimate king Jesus. He gives. Christ gives us truth. That turns us toward life. And away from death. Christ gives us provision. And people to support us. And, and bring us along in his way of life. And of course most of all Christ. He gives us himself. Isn't that how he defines himself to his disciples. When he says I did not come to be served. But to serve and to do what? To take? No. To give my life. To give. Give my life as a ransom for men. So if we're going to know the complete king, we must always bring this to mind. He gives generously, even, even his own self in our place, to purchase the true life that we rejoice in day by day and look forward to in full expression upon the king's return. If we're going to know Jesus, we have to know that he's gentle with the weary, he's restorative in victory. And above all, really, maybe I should say underneath all of that, the foundation of all of that is he is the giver. He's the one who gives life. And so we'll sing this song next, but, but, but what heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease, my comforter, and what's the next line? My all in all. My all in all. All I have, all I need is found in Jesus' completeness. So what? So here in the love of Christ, I stand. Not here in the strength of Jared, I stand. Not here in the reputation of Jared, I stand. Not here in the plans of Jared, I stand. Not here in the, in the completeness of Jared, I stand. Here in the love of Christ, I stand. Because I'm incomplete. You're incomplete. But in Christ, we find total wholeness. And he's ours. And we praise him for that truth. Let's pray. <clears throat> so Lord Jesus, we ask that you would renew our minds with the truth of your sufficiency. 
We ask that that would move into our hearts and bring us comfort and peace. And we ask that that would then in turn affect our lives, that we could display the security we have in you, the wholeness that comes from knowing you, that we could display that to the world around us. We ask that you would bring restorative grace to us this morning, strengthen our weak knees, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.